Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy Bar Chat Podcast. This is Tristan Stevenson. Today, I'm joined remotely by Liam Davey and Gavin Pathros. Liam is a long-time fixture on the London bar scene, having overseen bar operations for the Hawksmoor Restaurant Group for around a decade, not discounting a brief spell as an operator with the gone-but-not-forgotten bad sports taqueria. Gavin is the CEO of Ratio Coffee and Cocktails, based in Singapore. Ratio design intelligent software and robotics to facilitate hot and cold drink service in bars and restaurants. In this broad-ranging episode, we discuss how the ongoing crisis has impacted bars and restaurants, the movement towards digital menus and the re-adoption of QR codes. We discuss the differences between the Asian and Western markets, the adoption of automated service machines, how the digitization of the industry may affect jobs, and how artificial intelligence might play a role in the hospitality industry in decades to come. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. Okay, I am joined remotely by Gavin Pathros and Liam Davey. Hey guys, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. I'm very good, thanks, Chris. So Gavin, you're in Singapore right now. Cool. How's things in Singapore? Uh, we are just a little bit concerned about the second wave, but I think so far so good and I'm not going to jinx it. So um, we hope to continue to be on a downward trend. And if everything goes well, uh, the bars will continue opening and uh, we will not have to close it down. Uh, and Liam, you're opening Hawksmoor Edinburgh today, correct? That's it. The sixth, it's the sixth opening of the last four weeks. So yeah, they're coming thick and fast. Yeah. Um, how's the how's the sort of whole uh, closure and reopening thing been for the Hawksmoor Group? Because uh, tell us a little bit about what you do for Hawksmoor first. Uh, so my title is head of head of bars. Although, kind of what that looked like six months ago and what it looks like now, pretty pretty different. Um, everyone's kind of doing extra extra stuff. Um, the openings have been have been good. I mean, obviously the closing was quite tragic. Um, we didn't know how long we were going to be closing for. We had to give away hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of food um, to charity, which is a, a nice thing to be able to do, but also kind of pretty financially damaging. Um, we the, the openings have been, so far been great. I think the, the openings for us have not necessarily been reflected upon openings in the UK bar and restaurant industry as a whole. It's been a pretty tough time for a lot of people. Um, but yeah, so far, so far, so good. Pretty, pretty busy. Um, so Gavin, tell us a little bit about what you do, because it's quite interesting, actually. I did a little bit, obviously did a little bit of research on you, delved around, tried to dig out some skeletons in the closet, didn't find any. <laughs> so um, Ratio is a robotic coffee and cocktail bar. Uh, we primarily built technology for the F&B industry, and currently it's being used by the hotel industries, the restaurants, and our own uh, bar and um, coffee shops. And we're currently in Singapore in the process of opening a couple of uh, outlets in Singapore followed by the region. So you are someone that really sees, you know, I guess technology um, and the transition to sort of digital as a major factor in the future of hospitality would that be correct um, i would say very specific segments within hospitality or within the fnb industry but not everything but technology will be a very big part of it uh with or without me so i mean obviously we have things like apps that are now allowing us to get food and drink delivered to ourselves that are we have apps that you know function like social media that allows to check into venues and access information about them but, I mean, robotic bartenders and baristas is another level on top of that altogether, right? 
Yeah, so I think maybe I'll take a step back uh, with regards to um, what most of us, including the US, the UK, Singapore is seeing right now at a technology level is probably five to six years behind in terms of China. So you talk about reservation systems, you talk about digital payment, you talk about uh, anything with regards to technology and food and beverage. Um, compared to where China is today, I would say most countries are at least five years behind. So what we've done is essentially take it to the next level, as you just mentioned, with robotics and automation. So let me just walk you through a very basic journey at where I used to work at KFC. Um, a person's able to pre-order their KFC burger meal for lunch. Um, they go to the counter, pick it up and leave, essentially bypassing the entire ordering process where you have to go and wait in line, tell the cashier what you want, tell them how many chicken you want, um, and then after that, wait in line for the food, pick it up and then leave. So we've actually eliminated the number of cashiers within the China market by, uh, I can't give you the exact number because I'm not allowed to um, for, for confidentiality reasons, but a very significant number of cashiers have been eliminated or repurposed for, for that purpose. Okay. So, and for fast food, this seems like something that makes perfect sense to me because you don't go and pick up like, you know, chicken McNuggets, obviously other nuggets are available, um, for the kind of warmth of the hospitality that you're going to get at that, you know, place. Um, you want to, it's fast food, right? You want to get in there and get out and actually you probably want to minimize human contact wherever possible. But as you say, it, it's not necessarily applicable to other areas of hospitality where the service is sort of part of what you're paying for, right? Um, there are a couple of uh, categories in that because even if you look at Pizza Hut and a few other brands that we used to own uh, when uh, was at Yum, um, the next level is casual dine-in and then you have fine dine-in. Uh, so when we look at fast food, I think it's the speed in which you get your food. And then casual dining for all intents and purposes, the preparation process is almost done at central kitchens and it's only just warming it up. So I think it's a question on the entire supply chain, what is actually already done, pre-packaged, pre-made, and then what is the preparation process. So I think from the preparation process, if you look at hourly wage staff where they didn't go to culinary school in France, um, more often than not, you are able to actually take it and put it in the microwave oven and can that be done by someone else. Um, and in terms of um, what you're doing with cocktails and coffee, what sort of venues are th that is that being put into? And what, what kind of, what's the clientele? What do they expect when they come in? Uh, for sure. So uh, we have a B2B business uh, where we, we sell our solution or lease our solutions to actual businesses itself. Uh, we also run our own coffee and cocktail bars. So currently we have six locations. Uh, the most uh, prominent is actually within hotels itself, uh, hotels where it would not traditionally make sense to hire a full-time bartender or uh, two bartenders to be able to man it the entire day. Uh, so they would put the cocktail solution and a coffee solution, essentially creating a cafe slash bistro environment. Um, and then you have another one, which is our own coffee and cocktail bars, where we run it under the ratio brand. With that, uh, it will be no different from your traditional Costa coffee, your Starbucks coffee, etc. But then what we have done is repurpose the evenings to be able to serve alcohol instead of your traditional Costa coffee. And then some people come presumably for the sort of novelty factor of this. They want to kind of experience, you know, what it's like for automated 
drinks to be made. So you would be absolutely correct if it, within the first six months of our operation, we have been running it for a year and a half. Uh, if you were to be in any of our China locations right now, uh, quite literally, nobody even bothers about the robot. Nobody even takes a photograph of it anymore. So there will be a novelty factor for anyone who has not seen it. So you're, you're spot on with regards to the first six months. After that, we had to run it on our own merits, whether the coffee was any good or whether the cocktail was any good. Really? So it's that quick for people to just, it just become normalized that, oh yeah, there's a robot making my cocktail. That's just so last year. We, we literally operate within 500 meter radius. We have about nine competitors in China and we have to quite literally win every dollar uh, for anybody who wants coffee from us. There must be a good enough reason why they're picking us and not uh, my competitors. So you have nine competitors that are making similar products. Like you're not talking about competitors that are human baristas. You, your, your product's the best, obviously. That's why we've got no, you on here. But no. so I think I think in coffee, um, there I would not say we're the best, but I mean there are a few elements of coffee that's quite straightforward. Number one is the coffee beans have got to be good. It's got to be roasted uh, fairly fresh. Usually uh, within one week to two weeks of when it was last roasted. Number two, the ability to customize um, because everybody has a different taste profile. Take, for example, the, between the three of us, I guarantee you uh, our Americano profile will be different. You might want more water. You might want less water. You want, want, might want more espresso. So these are the things that we're able to do within the app itself. So you customize it to your taste profile. Mm, and is there like a you know, a, an AI component to that where it learns about your preferences, you can rate what you taste or drink, and then it kind of suggests what you might want to drink next? So you hit it on the nail. Uh, there's a lot that we're doing behind the scenes right now. We haven't quite uh, reached where it's an Amazon AI recommendation level. But what we've done is we have tagged a lot of the, um, the uh, taste profiles within cocktails itself, uh, where you have sweet, sour, salty, umami, and spicy, which are your five main tastes. And based on the taste profile, after you come to my shop like two or three times, we can quite reasonably predict what kind of a drinker you are. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because what we're, what you're doing is creating a machine that sort of fulfills the same role as a bartender. So in that, you know, you have a regular who comes into your bar and you know what they like to drink. You know if you've got a new product in that they might like to taste it. You know that they drank gin and tonics last time, so they might like to drink drinks of a similar nature. And therefore, you create a profile for them around their previous preferences and then produce a drink for them that would presumably be to their tastes. So it's I, I'm wondering why or where the sort of necessity is to, I guess, obviously, there's a reduction in cost for, for labor, presumably a, a pretty high initial outlay to buy a machine that does this kind of thing. But aren't we just aren't you just creating something where there's already a, a person that can do it? Uh, absolutely not. So there, uh, for starters, if we look at the market environment in which we are operating in, which is in China, you cannot train bartenders fast enough. That's the first point. Now, um, there are a 1000 new hotels being open every year in China. Now, with regards to that, uh, if you go into a tier two, tier three, or tier four cities, and when by tier, we talk about the GD, relative GDP, so a poorer city or a not so um, uh, advanced city like Shanghai, Beijing, and Shenzhen, which are considered tier one cities, um, you would not be able to have a cocktail that's going to be made by somebody well-trained. Now, vis-a-vis -vis that of no bartenders, uh, I think we plug into a very nice gap. I'm very careful about saying that we compete with bartenders because we don't. 
Uh, we do not intend to ever compete in the cocktail industry with real bartenders because I'm a big advocate of people who are real bartenders who have taken it as a craft and learned it. We actually borrow a lot of their recipes and actually we pay a royalty with regards to the people that actually provide us a recipe and we upload it onto the web. Uh, or the Cloudware robots start learning how to actually make the drinks exactly the way it is. So with regards to the bartenders, we have the highest degree of respect for the craft. And I can assure you that that is something that we will never be able to replicate, especially the conversations. If you are a bartender and you say, hey, what would you feel like drinking today? Are you feeling a certain way? That will never be replaced. By How can I assist you today with your drink? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, but now, but, but now think about Costa Coffee or Starbucks now being able to double up as a bar at night. That would be a game changer. Yeah, sure. Right. So, Liam, you're kind of going to be coming at this more from the same kind of um, position as me in that we've we've owned and operated bars that have to certainly a far lesser extent adopted technology, technological practices into our offering, be that website, social media, um, perhaps online menus, um, maybe online booking systems like this. I mean, I don't know about you, but this seems like a you know, an insight into the future, like five, 10 years into the future. Um, what's your initial thoughts on that? Uh, well, first things first, ab- like absolutely fascinating, right? Um, I think my very first thought was how unbelievably far we are behind uh, China yeah. and Singapore and, and places like that when it comes to these kind of things. I mean, I feel like a complete and utter Luddite listening, listening to some of that. But um, I think there's a few things that jump off the page straight away. First, first things first, um, I think there's very, it's very easy to divide this up or to tr- people try and divide it up into two camps, which is this pro-technology on one side and kind of old-school anti-technology on the other side. Um, I think that's wrong and quite dangerous. Some of the, the things that, that got brought up um, included things like hotels who can't afford or don't have the, the revenue to pay for a, a full-time bartender to work. And again, having run places, I used to run a, 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 own a bar, which was very, very quiet, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday evenings. If, if you could have had that kind of system in there then, it would have saved, it potentially would have saved our business. I think there's a lot of people uh, in the same boat. I think another thing that, that got brought up was there was a huge shortage of skilled labor in the uh, in the hospitality labor market in the UK. Um, and if, if we are able to get back to, this, to that, to the stage we were in six months ago, I think some of this would be fantastic. What were you doing at Hawksmoor and what have you changed in respect to digital? Um, I mean, digital reservations is, I'm sure, a part of the business. Um, is it purely online reservations or is there a reservations team that you can phone up and speak to a human? You can phone up and speak to, I mean, you can, you can phone up and speak to a human. Very few people tend to do that. Um, I think did, uh, digital reservations really kicked off about 10, 11 years ago. Um, and we haven't really looked back since. And I think that's you know really revolutionised the restaurant industry in London anyway. I think probably responsible for more restaurants because people just find it easier to book and as a result, more people go out for dinner. Not a huge amount has changed besides QR menus, um, which again is something that we will use for the time being. We still have paper menus available. Um, I think that kind of the, the whole aim has been to try and get the restaurants feeling looking and feeling as close as possible as they did before this all happened because that's kind of what our customers are looking for having said that you know being out and about i'm not sure how much you've 
been out in London. I know you live down in Cornwall, um, but people are innovating a lot, particularly in the casual sector. Yeah, um, the QR code thing is an interesting one, isn't it? Because those, I don't know, Gavin, what your perspective is on QR codes from your position in Singapore and working in China, but you know, QR codes sort of reared their, their heads, I don't know, like maybe 15 years ago. Um, 10 years ago, and then sort of seemed to die a death in the UK and Europe, and I presume the US as well. I don't even know if they're ever really a thing in the US. Um, and everyone thought, yeah, that was funny. That was a funny thing. <laughs> Do you remember when we had those QR codes that no one actually bothered to scan? <laughs> it was just, you know, f strange little symbols plastered all over everything. And then now obviously become a huge thing because over here, we, um, the, the contact tracing is all done through, well, mostly done through, through the use of QR codes. And lots and lots of venues are using QR codes um, for people to access their menus. And you're now like, yeah, actually, this is pretty simple technology. It's a bit clunky. It's weird. I mean, you know, I don't really like reading a menu off my iPhone um, because it's so small. And you've got to sort of pinch and zoom and scroll around the place and everything. Um, and I do miss paper menus and book because the, the thing about paper menus or indeed like menus that are like books is they are some, in some ways an expression of the venue, aren't they? Aren't they? they you know, whatever the material is, the weight of it, the size of it, the, the typography, the spacing, all that stuff. I mean, you've got that in digital as well, I suppose, but it's less tactile. Um, and so you're kind of losing one of those components that contributes to the overall identity of the place that you're visiting and therefore i think your lower perceived value um that you're getting um when you go and visit so i, I think you you hit on a lot of different topics within the qr code itself but let me unpack that a little bit uh for beginners uh paper is going to be omnipotent it will never be replaced and nothing can ever replace in terms of what paper can do uh, whether you talk about weight, the kind of fonts, the kind of style, etc. Now, the paper menu, or we talk about the entire menu that looks like books. Number one, there's a cost element to it as an operator. So if you look at it from an operator, if you want to change the menu every month, for example, uh, the places that actually do very frequent changes would actually use as low cost as possible, some kind of a, like a table, like it doubles up as a table mat, for example, just so mm -hmm. that they can actually do it very frequently. That's the first point. The second point is with regards to um, the hygiene factor, which is why a lot of people are using QR codes, um, is that you're actually just using it from your phone itself. Is it the experience just as good? The answer is absolutely not. But what are the advantages? Can, number one, we talked about you know being able to create dynamic menus, things that could potentially propose certain things given that what it knows about you. But mm. since we're on the topic of QR code, I just want to um, go a little bit one step further because in China, the QR code has been reinvented almost. There is an app called WeChat, and some of you may have heard of WeChat. WeChat has their own proprietary QR code. So when you scan the when you scan this proprietary QR code, not only does it launch a web-based page, which is a HTML5 page, what it actually launches is an app. So it actually builds in an app in app, which allows you to not have to ever go and download whether it's Deliveroo, mm -hmm. Panda, any of these apps. So imagine your whole phone now having no apps, but just using WeChat as the super app. And it's able to start doing all that. That changes the entire equation for a variety mm. of reasons. Just look at menu itself. 
after you see the menu, and I'm not proposing that we do not have waiters to come in or waitresses or serve staff to come across and actually share and talk about the menu. But after seeing the menu, what is the most frustrating thing is waiting for a waiter that is not available when you know exactly what you want from the menu, which has happened many, many times. That was something we did five years ago in Pizza Hut where we already had the QR code, scanned it, and immediately allowed people to actually order. Now, what we should look at is service as an overlay as opposed to um, as opposed to the only way to get your order into the cloud or into the actually uh, the kitchen itself. So assume you know exactly what you want. You want a burger, you want an appetizer, and you want a drink. And you know, you see the menu and you know exactly what you want. You click the order, the chances of the person getting it wrong is zero because you literally quite order just yourself. And now mm. it goes straight into the kitchen. The kitchen can start preparing it. Now, after you eat the meal, another uh, another pet peeve of mine is waiting for a waiter to come back to allow me to pay my bill when I'm ready to pay the bill already. And I would like to leave. So these are some of the pain points that we saw in a casual dine-in environment. Again, I'm not suggesting that this applies for a fine dine-in, but there are going to be segments of people that absolutely want this pain point taken away. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't have to be me alone, but there are people who say, I'm ready to get a bill. I'm ready to get out of here. Can I just not have to wait for you to go and figure out the bill? Because clearly you know how much it's spent. Do you think um, that I get I get that there's different segments of the hospitality sector where this kind of thing is way more appropriate? But do you also think that it's only appropriate, it, well, not only appropriate, but it's more appropriate to certain cultures as well? Do you think that, you know, the West is just 10 years behind? Or do you think that, in actual fact, in Asia, they're just much more, like, ready to accept that, we want to digitize this and remove as many obstacles from the ordering and payment process. Whereas in somewhere like France, for example, um, where there's, you know, a, a long-standing hospitality culture, not that there isn't in Asia, but, you know, it's very highly regarded for its cuisine. Um, and the service, albeit, you know, not always great, <laughs> is a kind of part of that, um, that people even who are looking for a quick bite to eat or a coffee will be less inclined to use an app um no matter how sort of slick it is and and want to kind of still have that human contact so i'll answer the question this way and i'll happy to pass it off later to hear uh, a differing point of view i don't believe it's a question of just culture plays an absolute part there's no question about it but i think again there's a time and place there is no homogeneous customer there's no one type of customer and even for the same type of customer at different points in times i want different kinds of experiences i'm a person that absolutely loves fine dining i, I love the best wines i love the best fine dining restaurants, et cetera. And every time I travel, I look for Michelin star restaurants because that's the experience I want at that particular point in time. There are going to be points in time where I just need a quick fix. I need a salad. I need to be in and out. And for me, at that particular time, the technology would be great. Now, what we need to, what needs to happen is if the person or if that segment needs to use technology at that particular point in time or that particular moment, they have the ability to do it. I may choose to not want to wait for the menu, which may take the waiter five minutes because he or she is busy, and I want to see the menu right here, right now. And the kind of uh, the kind of segment, especially the Gen Zs and the Gen Ys, they are time they, they are constantly time 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 crunch. I mean, they they have only an attention span of thirty seconds. So if they don't get it right here, right now, they're not interested. So I really think it's a question on 
when and how and why, because everybody has a different time requirement at a different point in time. So I think my view is it does not apply uniformly for everybody for an, at all times. Yeah. Okay. So what about looking at Hawksmoor as a sort of case study of this? You, Liam, you said you, you're doing the digitized menus. Is that How does that look? Is it just basically a web page with your normal menu on it? Or is there like click-throughs to different sections? Does it work more like an app? Exactly. I mean, it literally goes through, takes you through the page on our website um, directly with, with the menu on. And we give people the option of paper or, or that which, to be fair, most people have, most people just take a paper menu as as they normally would. Uh, I think part of this is, is not necessarily what we're doing today, but potentially what we might do in the future with it. Um, it's been really, really interesting to listen to Gavin talking about some of these things because I, I actually feel like you, you talked about fine dining, like which I guess in your categorizations we would fit into that bracket in terms of price point. Um, but but I actually feel like some things that might actually work. Uh, in the fine dining sector, you talked about paying a bill at the end of, at the end of a, a meal, for example. Um, I, th- I think you could probably <clears throat> use technology to make that much simpler, even in a fine dining setting, um, and probably mm. customers would get used to that very, very quickly and, and be a lot happier. Yeah, I agree with that. I think um, the paying of the bill is not exactly a, a um, essential component of the hospitality experience. It's something that you want to get done quickly and get it out of the way. Um, you know, obviously, it's nice to have that. How was your meal? You know, you know, come back another time and everything. But you don't need to uh, remove that um, just because you're not having a person physically taking payments. You know, people used to. I mean, if you told if you told Gordon Ramsay twenty twenty five years ago that uh, people wouldn't be calling up his restaurant to book a table, they'd be doing it through a computer. He probably would have probably would have laughed at you. And I, th- I think quite a lot of people continue to persevere with you know pen and paper diaries with. For, for a long time after after open table and book a table came along um i think there's, there's a restaurant in in maine in new england that still sends out handwritten letters to everyone to confirm their reservation which is very sweet if a bit twee um but you know i, th- I think that it's amazing how quickly people get used to new things um, and then they just become normal so i, I don't think i think that the fine dining sector shouldn't be a barrier to, to innovation and change I think that there are certain things with regards to menu that can also be adopted. It doesn't have to be an either or, it could be both. And I think the people that want to opt in to use a digital menu, which may have the benefits of the digital side of things. Allow me to explain why. Uh, you may have menu that might could be more dynamic in nature. How often do we see from a consumer truth perspective where you see some a waiter walking with a certain dish and very often you're so curious as a consumer you're wondering to yourself when you're asking your, 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 your partner, what do you think that is? Where is it on the menu? I wonder whether we can order that dish that just walked past. Um, quite frankly, if you actually could see a dynamic menu that essentially says, you know, today there are a lot of people ordering this, that could be something that leverages technology to allow you to actually find out the table next to you or the table to the left of you, what they're ordering. I mean, it doesn't have to uh, uh, invade privacy, but I think it, allows you to take advantage of the digital platform. Number two, if, for example, if let's say there are certain uh, types of uh, um, ingredients that are being used inside this particular dish, half the time I don't even know what these ingredients are. It would be great if I could just drill into it a little bit more to find out what these ingredients and how they prepare it. Maybe there's a video that comes along with it. I, I think that there is, a, again, a time and place for everything, and it will appeal to some people. It will not appeal to everyone. I think I, I, I've got a few comments on those points. It's interesting. Um, on the on the first one, um, 
So about, you know, uh, knowing what other people are ordering and having that sort of desire to, you know, either order the same thing or, or to not, um, if you want to be different. I, I, Hawksmoor sort of do that already, right? I mean, you have the big stakes up on the blackboards and cross they're, off, crossed yeah. Out, yeah. they're crossed out. So, you, it, I mean, it's a much more sort of primitive way of doing yeah, it, I suppose, with the blackboard. But you go there and, well, I don't anymore because I'm vegetarian, but you go there and you go, there's only one of those T-bones left or whatever. You know, and they've crossed off five already. There was probably only ever one in the first place, by the way. You know, <laughs> we never uh, that. Not that I'd know. Um, but it, it creates that sort of demand, supply and demand um, dynamic, where you're like, right, I better get the last one, even though it's 120 pounds. Yeah. Um, uh, and and it works really effectively, especially if you see other people it, see it walking out on a plate, and it's this huge, great thing. Um, by the way, my, my time spent as a meat eater, I did enjoy something very, very good. Some of the best meals I've ever had at Hawksmoor. Oh, um, that's right. Um, and I forgot what your second point was now. I, was, I had a comment on that one too. I think it was regards to video of wanting to find out more about the ingredients. Oh, yeah. Huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, see, here is where I think we might differ because if I want – I, I like going to restaurants and discovering new ingredients and new dishes. And I think – I used to work for um, uh, Jamie Oliver at a 15 restaurant and they had a habit of basically printing the menu in Italian. And um, so you'd, you'd walk in and, of course, you'd recognize certain words and you'd probably be able to work out a few more if you had, like, a degree in Latin um, or spoke fluent Italian. But inevitably, there were certain, you know, certain phrases on the menu may have been the style of cooking or the ingredient where you're like, I don't know what that is. And it was almost done by purpose to encourage conversation, dialogue with, with the waiter or waitress. And I think it worked really, really well because that kind of conversation was unavoidable. Now, for, for people who don't want to talk to a waiter or a waitress, it's probably the wrong restaurant to go to in the first place because it's fine dining and, uh, you know, it's expensive and it's for people that want to explore flavours and ingredients. But most of the people turning up there are willing to try new things and do want to have those conversations and don't mind feeling like they are not fully informed when it comes to a menu. And so you'd have great dialogue between the guests and the server discussing, you know, what these different terms and phrases, ingredients and preparation methods were. And I feel like if that was done, you know, through an app or digitally or through drilling down through, uh, you know, an online menu, be it through WeChat or otherwise you'd lose some of that. Sure, you'd still get the same information that you were seeking, but it wouldn't have, but because it hasn't come from a human, it doesn't feel it's not some it's not adding as much value to your dining experience in my opinion. Uh, absolutely. I, I do not disagree with the opinion at all. In fact, I as I said, I am a big fan of somebody sitting uh, standing beside me and walking me through a menu and telling me all these wonderful things. Mm. It has been priced in. Yeah. It has been priced in. It is not for free. Let's be as operators, I can tell you that for a fact. So mm. the thing is, how do you almost replicate that experience in a different environment where it could be casual, uh, casual dining, where you don't have that being priced in? It's priced mm. differently. So I, I absolutely do not think, and this is where my firm belief is. I hope that people who are extremely well-trained baristas or mixologists or bartenders, some people hate the word mixologists or bartenders, will eventually be able to charge two or three times higher because it's being made by very well-trained people and people that want a quick fix. For example, if let's say a drink was 20 pounds uh, in a certain bar, but now we can serve it for six pounds, it's more accessible. 
uh, but it's it's the exact same taste profile. So I think where we are coming from is creating that experience and making it more accessible to the people around the world. So assume you have a top tier bar in London that I can either borrow or pay for the menu by paying royalty and now serve it in every part of Southeast Asia, which bar wouldn't want that? I think it's quite an interesting point as well. Uh, we, we, uh, during the kind of close down, we started sending, we started uh, selling Hawksmoor at home boxes with QR codes showing you how to kind of how to cook a steak perfectly, how to how to make uh, chip perfect chips, uh, the cocktail that was in the box, how, how that was made, those kind of things. Um, you know, I, I do think there's a lot in that, particularly for a lot of people who at the moment are not wanting to leave the house. And the last point that Gavin made there, which I thought was really interesting, the reach potentially for a bar to sell more cocktails that way by selling them cheaper, but by showing people how they're made through video content or whatever is, I think, really, really interesting. I think the problem at the moment is people are still charging for them as if they're having them in a bar. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that is a major problem. So it's in a way, it's about looking at how you invest in the products you're offering, right? You either... You're either kind of investing ongoing with, you know, expensive staff and by expecting people to come to your venue and, and, and adding value and charging for it through that experience. Or you kind of front load the investment through, you know, developing technologies that can support the operation ongoing, whether that be, um, you know, further information about the product or videos that can you know, make 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 a drink. Uh, you know, easy to create even by someone who's entirely untrained. And then you kind of recuperating that upfront cost ongoing because you're, you're you know you no longer need to spend all that money on the venue and the staff. Yeah, I mean, I would say first at the moment, <clears throat> if you take take where we were with innovation on this six months ago, it was sort of going at a pace that was relatively, you know, in the UK anyway, relatively slow, and everyone's been forced to kind of quicken that pace up a lot. I think we really can't lose sight of the fact that at the moment, more important than any innovation is trying to keep as many people in work as possible. So mm. if that means stalling innovation for a little while, then so be it. But you can't unlearn the things you've, you've learned over the last six months. So I, th- you know, I think a combination of integrating some of these things in, but also trying to get as many people back to work as possible and keeping as many businesses afloat is really, really important. And not just kind of ignoring the human element completely in, in, uh, in favor of innovation. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, there's sort of two different strands to this, isn't there? There's one is the more sort of long term um, look into how technology might transform the industry in the next 10, 20, 30 years. And then the other is looking at how digitization can help us in the current climate, not to replace staff, but to, you know, ensure that, um, you know, we're creating safe environments for guests and for staff to work in. Um, because, uh, you know, that's paramount right now. Well, you mentioned the word replace staff, and I'd like to take a crack at that. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> because I think, I think it's, a, it's a taboo subject, and a lot of people try to avoid it as much as we can. But um, if we look at industrial revolution, um, a lot of things were either automated or created machines to actually do what we do. A simple thing would be, um, if you look at dough, uh, previously, you never had machine to actually do dough and kneading of dough. So people created machines to be able to do that. Uh, then we started creating more machines to be able to actually help out the kitchen staff so that they don't have to do all so much menial work. Now, how far do we stretch it is a question mark. Um, where we look at it at ratio 
is that a lot of countries actually have a tough time hiring staff to work behind the kitchen, at least at an hourly wage level. When I say hourly wage level, it could be even like in Australia, 15 bucks, 70 bucks an hour, which is not trivial. Now, if you multiply that by 10 people, that's $170 an hour. Now, how many hamburgers do you need to sell to cover $170 an hour? So the question now goes back to, is that really the choice of profession that a person wants? More often than not, the hourly wage kitchen worker is not choosing that as a profession, but as a part-time gig uh, or, you know, just to, um, um, to do some part-time work or something along those lines. Now, if we take it a step further and we start thinking about the people that truly want to do it as a career, as a profession, they will go to culinary school and what have you. Some manage to work their way up. Now, the people that are displaced by technology, it does not have to be robots, a microwave oven for all intents and purposes. Economy will create new kinds of jobs that will allow people to do more high value work to be able to essentially contribute to the economy. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's I think it's correct to say it's not it's not taking away the job. It's taking away the profession. Right. Because there'll still be a job. It's just it'll be a different profession right i mean if you think if you think pre-industrial revolution to use your example um you know let's uh you know let's say before um before industrial weaving machines uh there were you know people who would hand weave textiles together okay once you've got looms created the hand weaving job or profession sorry no longer exists but there's now a new job created which is you know managing these machines building these machines and all those kind of things so the same number of jobs still exist up to a point i mean we don't know right how far you take it you know i, I didn't think we'd be getting on to like uh, you know automation yeah. ai and uh, <laughs> yeah, universal that, basic <laughs> income and all this kind of stuff but uh, let's just go with it and see yeah. where it takes us you know up to a point right i mean once the whole planet is automated you know what what is uh, what, what is our job otherwise than just overseeing machines i completely agree with the, the, the point that was made a minute ago but I think the, the, the point is that were we having this conversation six months ago again, this, this was a gradual process. Okay, so, so as a gradual process, as technology improves, jobs are found elsewhere and, and things naturally move into, di into different sectors and, and into different professions. What we've got now, and I don't know what the situation is in, in Singapore, but in the UK is you have, say, let's say two million people in, a, in the hospitality sector out of work, okay, unable to work because they're, they're physically unable to go into work. Now, you, 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 you can't just lose those 2 million jobs overnight. It's just, it's, it's, it can't, it's going to be, it'll be a catastrophe, but a complete disaster. So first things first, you've just got to get those back and not replace them with technology now. Um, I think, I think it's, 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 a, it's a real worry if that, if that happens. If, um, if you look at, uh, you know, where, where automation, digitization, whatever you want to call it, might assist with operations, I suppose the other way of flipping on his head is, you know, what are the parts of the job of being a bartender that are most enjoyable? Is it the creative process when it comes to cocktails? Is it the research? Is it, you know, the human interaction? And some of these um, you know, innovations may, you know, retain these jobs and allow for us to be doing the parts of the profession that we enjoy the most, thus, you know, keeping a job and also improving happiness, giving better job satisfaction. I mean, like taking payment, for example, you don't want to be you don't, you know, taking someone's credit card is not the most satisfying part of a of, of working as a bartender. 
So remove that out of the equation, allow that to be automated, and it gives you more time to do the things that are actually enjoyable with the profession. It was interesting, Tristan, while during lockdown, I was, I was helping out our, our good friend Barry Wilson, who's a Diageo alum, alumnus, um, uh, who was doing a drinks, uh, drinks drop uh, with his company. And we basically spent the entire day batching cocktails, putting them into little pouches, uh, labeling them and sending them off on a bike courier. And there was three or four of us in a, in a room doing it who were all quite good friends. And it was really, it's really enjoyable. I, was, I, I thought, you know, I, this, is, this, is, this is something I could do. And actually that made you realize that part of the enjoyment of working in a bar or making drinks is being there with people you like, making things that are delicious, chat, chatting and, you know, listening to yeah. music and whatever it might be. Now, there, there, was, no, there, were, there were no guests there. Um, I'm, not saying, <laughs> I'm not saying we should eliminate guests altogether. Um, but I am saying that actually for a lot of people, that might be a, that might be a, a a better a better way to spend their day than being in a very busy bar till two o'clock in the morning, particularly if, if you're a little bit older like me. Um, so I think I think there you know there are potential ways that, that people could work differently and still work in a profession that they love. It doesn't necessarily have to be serving alcohol to people over over a bar counter till late at night. Yeah, no, thanks for 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 setting that up quite nicely because I think it's a very powerful point that you just me- mentioned, which maybe you didn't even quite realize. You said that you really enjoy the R&D and creative process in which you're creating the drinks. Now, that's fantastic. So you've created this drink, a new menu or new 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 drink that you'd like to share with people. Now, if I asked you as a bar manager, could you make 150 of those drinks within 30 minutes or half uh, for an hour, you'll get frustrated because your hands are going to be tired because you need to shake it a certain way. So where I'm coming from is even for bartenders themselves, they really enjoy the, 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 the process of creati- uh, creativity, creating new drinks, and engaging and watching people actually enjoy the drinks. That's the first point. And as we all know, uh, as more and more people come into a bar, um, the actual process of drink, without even us knowing or realizing, we actually have to take shortcuts where we now start doing double barrel uh, shaking so that you know, we can serve more people or even just not shaking it as long as it should be for a martini, for example. So where, where, where I am looking at nothing to do with my company is how do we now allow the bartenders to do great work, which is their creativity, engaging customers, etc. If I take that one step further and look at the wine industry and you look at a sommelier, a sommelier does not make the wine but he speaks very credibly about the wine when he goes to a table, when he uh, introduces the wine for a pairing. And this is exactly what we're hoping to achieve, whether it's baristas in future, whether it's uh, bartenders in future, where they are able to be paid fairly, again, maybe $40 a drink, $50 a drink, if they want it to be made by a human, because I feel that that person deserves it. But if somebody wants to get a quick fix, and for seven bucks a, a, a drink, then maybe it's not made by the head bartender, for example. So I think you have a lot that you have said that I fully agree with. And there are elements in which we should stretch it a bit further. Yeah, I mean, I, you could look at the sort of, in, uh, you know, increased use of batching and cocktails as a sort of technological innovation in bars, right? Because if you go back you know, 10 years ago, every drink would be made from scratch. You'd pick up three, four, five, six, seven bottles off the back bar or out of the fridge or ingredients in order to piece the drink together. And then I don't know if it dawned on everyone that this was a little bit silly. 
Um, it's not necessary to pick up all these bottles because some of these products can be mixed together, you know, well in advance. Sometimes all of the products can be mixed together well in advance. And that allows for a lot of great things to happen. Number one, uh, consistency. You know, the drink's going to taste the same every single time. Um, mixing seven different ingredients is likely to differ every single time, especially when you're measuring very small quantities of quite potent spirits or ingredients. Um, number two, it speeds up service, which allows you to make more drinks or allows you to spend more time conversing with a guest. And number three, it allows you to use perhaps more complex ingredients or ingredients that may need preparation in advance that you can't do a la minute. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's been a bit of a game changer, really. It's, a, it's allowed certain bars to do crazy things with garnishing because they've had way more time to do this sort of creative flourishes on top. And it, it's, it's, it's really, I think, up the standard of drinks. And consumers, to the best of my knowledge, unless they're expecting a kind of flare bar experience where, you know, the building of the drink is part of it and it's the showmanship and everything, haven't really suffered or lost anything in that process. No, gained, I'd say, massively, yeah. massively. I, I think the, we, we changed our menu at Hawksmoor from being very much kind of the first type, i.e. lots of, lots of bottles from the, from the bar shaken together. And, you know, it's quite relatively theatrical to, to very much a batch and bottle system and, you know, very, very few complaints. In fact, everyone's a lot happier because they get better drinks a lot quicker. I think, Gavin, you just see uh, what you're doing, I guess, is the next logical step on, or maybe three logical steps on from batching, right? It's like, yeah, get the robot to batch it. And then, yeah. But I like the idea of having... when you, The sommelier analogy is a nice one. Um, imagine, you know, bartenders who are no longer confined to the bar but are sort of roving the floor and discussing the nuances of these drinks that they created, they invented, and then they just go to a service hatch and this robotic arm kind of swings in. <coughs> there is your drink for table four. Of course, it wouldn't speak. I know. I'm don't, I'm, I realise we're not kind of... This isn't how AI works, you know. <laughs> it's 2020, and the best voice we can come up with for a robot is, like, way worse than even, like, Amazon Alexa. <laughs> Funny you say that because I've been very much a purist when it comes to drinking all my life, and obviously I'm uh, the antithesis of uh, almost being a, a, the the person that looks like I'm killing the industry. When in reality, what we're really trying to do is trying to make cocktails actually more accessible to the masses globally. So batch processing is one of the very big part that we are working on to to be able to do it, and then obviously creating the theatrical effect of you know making it cold. There are many ways to actually make a drink cold; it doesn't have to be shaken. So uh, that's all said and done. Uh, we have the highest respect for bartenders, and we intend to continue to um, to be their ally as opposed to be their enemy. Tristan, mm. Tristan, quick, quick question on this actually for you, for you. <laughs> I've turned into you here. Um, do you think um, cocktails and cans? Do you, do you think that's uh, raised awareness of cocktails, or do you think that takes away from people drinking cocktails uh, out? I think it's an occasion thing, isn't it? I think that um, pre-canned like canned RTD cocktails ready to drink serve a certain purpose. They allow you to kind of take cocktails on the road in a park. But I, so in a way, I, get, I, don't, I don't think you're opening up cocktails to a new audience. I think the kind of people that would buy those things would already be interested in buying them in a bar if a bar is available to them. Um, but it's 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 you know it's probably a positive thing for the industry because it's 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 extending that occasion for cocktails, and 
moving you know from a cocktail bar perspective this is moving people more towards this idea of cocktails for any occasion and you know you don't need to drink wine or beer um i mean i don't personally agree with that i think that wine and beer fit into that occasion model as well yeah um gavin another question for you which i was just thinking about you know how um you know data is such a, a, a an important thing now and we're kind of handing over this data to you know websites and and to social media platforms and then we're being marketed to through advertising that's personalized to us do you do you see a future where our our data and our habits our preferences when it comes to ordering drinks and food are collected in a similar way so that in a sort of slightly dystopian future i might walk into a bar and a screen behind the bar which my you know bluetooth on my phone is connected to will immediately suggest the drinks that are most appropriate to me without me even having to kind of punch into a touch screen or 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 obviously not even have a conversation with a bartender because we won't be doing that anymore uh <laughs> do you can you see that happening uh it has already happened our company has done it our company has done it so uh, typically what happens is when in in shanghai when somebody orders a drink and we and um after ordering the drink my staff which are called ratiologists and the reason they call ratiologists is because they are able to tell the customer what's the perfect ratio for them whether it's a coffee or whether it's a cocktail and they will they are immediately able to see on the screen itself that they have ordered a certain drink and they would have even seen the history of order and in fact my ai uh let's just call it a a a recommendation engine so it doesn't sound mm. so 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 grand um the recommendation engine will essentially tell my staff which is the ratiologist or also known as the, the uh, sommelier of sorts that would you like to propose this drink to him because his taste profile is very similar to this taste profile for drink and he's never done it before so they would actually make that recommendation already but without the ai talking to the customer but a human talking to the customer got you because i mean it it doesn't seem too far fetched to think that you know with a few more years of development a few more steps put in there it could be quite a sophisticated recommendation system wherein it factors in things like the weather um you know it factors in perhaps cultural events that might steer someone normally towards a cocktail it could factor in the time of the month and therefore adjust the price appropriately to seem more appealing to someone who hasn't yet got paid that month and then you start to sort of gather all this external data to basically manipulate our decision making process and and to the point where the machine knows more about what we want to drink than perhaps we're capable of introspectively deciphering ourselves. I'm grinning from year to year because you've re- literally quite re- you've read up my entire product roadmap. <laughs> God, God. You're like the, you're the Skynet of bars. I'm 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 disturbed, but also slightly excited. Yeah, me too. <laughs> How long is it going to take before this is? Uh, I mean, let's sort of look at the roadmap from a from a China and Asia perspective. So I think I think we are actually very close. The, the technology is there. Uh, implementation and acceptance will be the next step. So we've already implemented parts of what you've already said. Uh, it is not um, it is not going to be mass market anytime soon. I think we are looking at anywhere between five to ten years where this becomes mass market. But I do believe that certain markets will adopt to this faster and other markets will not. Uh, that said, I think it's going to be um, largely about 
you know, entrepreneurs and even some of our customers and clients who are actually buying our technology to actually roll it out uh, mass market. And I think it's going to be largely based on price, which is can we get the price low enough where it makes sense for an establishment like a hotel, which might be a three-star hotel versus a five-star hotel, but it still like the lobby lounge experience. So all this will be very contingent on what the technologists, such as myself, are able to do for the market. Hmm. Liam, I mean, if you and I had the opportunity to go and visit a bar wherein on arrival, we sort of gave up all of our decision-making um, privileges and effectively allowed the bar to download our browsing data and then to combine that with um, like, you know, all these external factors like weather and, and, and time of the year and all that sort of stuff. And then a drink was handed to us based on that. I mean, that would be maybe not something you want to see in every bar, but what an exciting prospect to go and see how a machine interprets your your preference and or, or how it second guesses or even perhaps improves a, it finds finds menu items that you wouldn't have perhaps chosen but that are indeed the best option for you at that time I mean, it's absolutely fascinating i think that the, I, I think about london specifically and and how much people love um and when i say novelty and gimmick i don't mean it in a negative way but i think that anyone who's ever managed to do those kind of things well where it's ex- to use that horrible word experiential because um, <laughs> that's what millennial all millennials love experiences apparently in all of them um <laughs> but I, I mean i do think that if, if that if somebody was to do that ai would be ai would be particularly interested in visiting it because i think it sounds fascinating and b i think it would be a huge success um at, you know and, and potentially a great brand that you'd be able to roll out and, and make a lot of money out of Apart from Amazon, if you look, and they can recommend the books based on the preferences that you like, if you look at Spotify, it's making recommendation on music based on your previous uh, history of music that you listen to. If you look at Netflix, it's also making recommendations based on the types of movies you like. So this is actually not far-fetched at all because the algorithms are all written. And I think it's just about plugging in the right algorithms and the right data for us to be able to do it. And some people would go, oh, yeah, but I like to try new things. And you're like, yeah, but it would know that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's the slightly insidious thing about it. It's like it knows you better than you. Um, Well, at least when it's sufficiently advanced. Um, You know, I feel like once we get to this point, the whole world's going to be flipped upside down anyway. And, you know, probably the least... um, you know, uh, a remarkable thing going on at that time is, oh, yeah, a bar knows what drink I want. So what? <laughs> you know, I've just teleported here. Come on. <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't go too far. It's very basic uh, marketing technique. It's called segmentation marketing, if you call it that. And how do you do segmentation marketing is by understanding the archetypes or the different personas or the different uh, people that you're serving. So all these are actually things that we've already been talking about and doing since the good old days of maybe 20 years ago. And it was previously called business intelligence. Some call it customer intelligence or customer insights. All this was just done with Excel and uh, data. Uh, None of this is actually that new. Um, So, right. I'm opening a bar. I have decided that um, 
it's just inefficient for all of my skilled, knowledgeable bartenders to be mixing drinks. And they're not that consistent. I want them instead to be roaming around the floor, delivering spiel on the cocktails and improving the guest experience while robots create my cocktails behind the scenes. How much do I owe you, uh, Gavin, for this installation? So um, uh, let me just change the use case a little bit, because if you wanted to open a bar, it should be a, 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 anyone who wants to use my product will not be somebody who really wanted to open a bar itself, but somebody who wanted to create the bar experience in addition to their core product. It could be burgers okay. and cocktails, or it could be fries and cocktails, it could be something else. And how much they would owe me, we've actually created a lease model where people are able to essentially pay for the robot and all the equipment that comes together with the robot uh, for the price of one head bartender. So essentially the, the salary of one head bartender is enough to cover the entire floor. Quick question, Gavin. That's impressive. Would, um, can, you, can you program the robot to do Tristan's robot voice? <laughs> yeah, that's a prerequisite. Here's your martini. <laughs> I'm sorry, I spilled a bit. <laughs> Silly me. Um, so we're trying to make it very, uh, very accessible for anyone who actually wants to install a robotic bar or a robotic uh, barista. And again, uh, we we don't just do bars itself because we believe in this concept of not packing air. And this is a concept that was created by IKEA. They actually came up with this business model that says we do not ship air. So everything that they ship from, whether it's China or Sweden, into any part of the world, everything is packed airtight. So we are trying to utilize that per square foot, which is how much you pay for rent, and to be able to pack as much technology in or equipments or ingredients just so that people are not paying rental to the landlord for areas that are not going to be used. So which is why we have decided to create a multifaceted robot that can actually do multiple drink types including milk tea or bubble tea. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it really depends on the amount of, uh, I mean, we, we have different categories also. So just based on the quantity and the volume in which uh, they want the uh, the robot to be able to produce. Some places we do it with one robotic arm, some places we do it with two robotic arms. Um, it really depends on the kind of environment that we need to be uh, serving. But quite frankly, going back to my original point, uh, we are trying to make this more accessible and create a bigger market as opposed to reducing the market size and also making it cheaper for the consumers. So I am actually sick and tired of paying six US dollars for my latte. I'd like to be able to pay three. And the only way to do that is to actually reduce certain costs. Mm. So in the um, cocktail um, system, what are the current limitations of the system? Presumably, um, it it can't it, can it make it you know an, an unlimited different uh, an unlimited different cocktails or you got to program it I guess but is there any limitations to that are there limitations to the number of ingredients are there limitations to the 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 construction method or technique of the building of the drink so we we are terrible at doing garnishing my robots right does it, I can imagine when you were doing like the R&D for the garnishing and it's just trying to delicately place like a, a lime twist on top of this drink and it just smashes straight through the glass. <laughs> so we're, 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 in, in terms of dexterity, robotics will never be there. Uh, in terms of the uh, cost-benefit analysis, if you run it, uh, we have over 100 ingredient points currently in our robotic system. So we will never short of ingredients. 
Um, so I really think it boils down to the uh, the dexterity side of things where we will never be able to flare. Uh, the robots will not flare it as well. Uh, we do some flaring, but not as good. Yeah, um, but it can do shaking and stirring like perfectly fine. Shaking and stirring. And we, we have a new product that's coming into the market that I can't disclose, but it's doing a little bit more than just shaking and stirring. You know what you need to do is like, you know, partner with with Boston Dynamics on one of these like scary, um, uncanny valley robotic dogs, and you know, just mount the machine on the back of it so that this thing scurries up to a table and um, says in my robot voice, "Hello, what can I get you?" And you know, you order, you order, and of course, it understands your voice and then makes this drink in front of you on the back of a dog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your, you got your marketing director right here, Gavin. <laughs> I know. I was going to say that he has not only figured out my entire product roadmap, he's also figured out my marketing. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best one I've ever used, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Well, look, um, guys, a little bit of time just for some self promotion. Gavin, tell us, uh, you know, where we can get in contact, where um, where we can see this stuff in action. Is there any? Have you got you any any sites in Europe or anything uh, or in, in America yet? Uh, we are currently in discussions with several companies in Europe and the US. Uh, several distributors that want to distribute our product, um, so it will be coming in the not too distant future. And if they want to see our robot in action, just go to www.ratio.inc, ratio.inc. Tapping it in as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> Liam, where can we come and see you or not see you? What should we, what, where should we, which Hawksmoor should we be going to right now? Uh, oh, I mean, we, we are open at all our locations uh, apart from uh, Knightsbridge and Guildhall. Uh, so Edinburgh, Manchester, and four in London. Uh, we're hopefully going to be opening our new restaurant in New York at some point in the next uh, next six months when that's when we're legally allowed to do so. Uh, and also keep an eye out because we're going to be hopefully launching a, a range of Hawksmoor at home cocktails later this month as well. Fantastic stuff, gents! Thanks so much for your time. That was a super interesting conversation. Um, my mind is slightly blown. Um, and no, I'm now not, gonna not, not by me. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, you, you, you kept your own there, Liam. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, re- I'm it's exciting to sort of think about where how this is going to pan out and um, you know, what where the future of bars lives, um, and what they look like. And I think, if anything, my takeaway is that we're just going to see a more diverse range of offering more different ways of doing things to the way we're doing it right now and i don't think it necessarily spells the death of you know a a classic bar where you walk in you sit down you speak to a bartender you order a drink and you get it and and that kind of you know human interaction it's just uh, it's gonna make the bar industry a more interesting space to talk about i think completely agree Absolutely. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Bar Chat. Visit diageobaracademy.com for access to more podcast episodes and exclusive content. See you next time.